Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I'm the host of the show where I get to have conversations with Olympic athletes, hopefuls, and legends on their story and path to the games. Today we have four-time Olympian Chris Freeman of the U.S. ski team cross country. Chris, as I said, went to four Olympics, 02, 06, 10, and 14. Chris uh, recently retired a couple years ago, right before the 20. 18 Olympics, understanding that he was a half a second short of making his fifth Olympics, unfortunately, but then decided to become a professional triathlete. Um, Chris has been in a battle with uh, type 1 diabetes since he was about 19 years old when he was diagnosed, and a lot of this conversation is how he's been able to cope with that, and not just cope with it, but overcome it and really do his best to, you know, become the incredible athlete that he is, even with something that, you know, the, the, the deck is stacked against him, and he's been able to go to, obviously, as I said, four Olympics and almost make a fifth. So thank you so much for Chris uh, to Chris for coming on, and without further ado, here is the conversation. All right, today's special guest, Chris Freeman, U.S. ski team, four-time Olympic athlete, born October 14th, 1980, grew up in East Andover, New Hampshire, started skiing. When he could walk, a diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 19, is a 17-time national champion, a four-time Olympian, 02, 06, 10, and 14. After retiring from cross-country skiing, he became a professional triathlete. Chris, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. The pleasure's all mine. I'm not going to the Olympics anytime soon, so I'm going to live vicariously through you if that's all right. Um, so born and raised in the New England area in, in um, uh Born in Concord, raised in East Andover. What is, what is it like being cold like eight months out of the year? I mean, it's something, it's something that you probably really enjoy, but what was that like growing up there? It's, it's a cool place, but man. Uh, I think eight months is a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> but, um, five, months, five months out of the year. Um, it's just what I was born with. It's what I, was, what I grew up with. And um, I'll be honest with you, I don't love the cold, but I do love to ski. And I, I kind of wish that the freezing temperature was warmer. Um, ah. It's snow when it's a warmer temperature. But um, my love for skiing outweighs my dislike of cold. So. I guess I guess that makes sense. And I, I say eight months out of the year. I, that also is because I'm a wimp when it comes to the weather. So I guess cold is relative. Um, so that's that's maybe where our difference comes from. But I've no, also, that's I've spent my fair share above the of time above the Arctic Circle getting early training in too. So uh, there's a, there's different levels of cold and New Hampshire isn't that bad. Yes. No, I've, I've, uh, I completely, completely, uh, believe you. Uh, hopefully I will never have to, um, endure that myself. Uh, I will let you and, and your incredible teammates do that for me. Um, so born and raised in New England, uh, how do you like, obviously a lot of skiing up there. Um, you know, I've spoken with athletes from the East coast. I've spoken with athletes from the West coast. Um, and a, what I've found is when it comes with skiers and snowboarders, it's always immediately, very rarely is it like, Oh, I started at 11. Like it's always sounds like it's your parents are really into it or it's just something in the culture and the town you're from. So where, how exactly did you get into skiing, especially at such a young age? Well, my parents were both skiers. Um, they, didn't, they didn't pick it up until their early 20s. They grew up in the Midwest, and then when they moved to New Hampshire, they, they gravitated to skiing. But uh, they put me on skis as soon as I could walk. And then I was really fortunate. Um, half of my town is made up of a private school, private high school named, called Proctor Academy. And they have their own facilities. They've got cross-country trails. They've got alpine trails. And they even have ski jumping. And they allowed, uh, or they had programs for the town kids, and 
free coaching, free equipment. And when I was five years old, I, I jumped in and uh, started in that program. That is awesome. And uh, thankfully, you started at a young age because you then didn't really, uh, especially with endurance, I feel like you have to kind of start that young. I don't think too many people at 12 or 15 are it's like, yeah, let's go ski for hours and hours and hours and hours on end like that. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think one of the one of the things is that the sensation of gliding on skis is something that if you do it very young, it becomes very natural. And if you start at a later age, it, it's a little little bit more forced. It's not that you can't learn it, but it just becomes part of you when you start doing it extremely young. Mm -hmm. um, and um, love for endurance sports and the fatigue and pain that comes with it that I think that's something you're either born with or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, hand up just like the cold, not, not born, uh, not an, not an endurance guy. I can sprint, but that's about all I've got. Um, so, I mean, I think that's really interesting that you bring up the fact of Proctor Academy and, and the fact that, you know, you, you, you know, so first actually let's take a step back from the Midwest. Why did your parents move up to the new England area, specifically this East Hanover area? Well, um, my mother grew up in a suburb of Chicago and my dad grew up on a pig farm in Iowa and he did not like Iowa. So he wanted to get as far away from it as possible. And the New Hampshire coast was about as far as he could go. Um, they met in college and moved to New England. And um, that's about as much as I know about that story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a job or if, you know, they love the, the scenery or whatever. But no, I think it was pretty much my father wanted to get away from the pig farm. Okay. I can, uh, I can respect that. I can respect yeah. that. Um, yeah, I've never had that opportunity. So good, good for them, but clearly it worked. Cause it's just, uh, I mean, how many places could they have moved to that had this specific type of, um, private school that, as you said before, you know, made up half the town that had all of these amenities, right. You know, it's, it's, it's just, I love how stars align sometimes. I think it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even end up going to Proctor as a high school. Yeah. Look at that. I, I, I was fortunate to be able to use their facilities. I had a, a great coach there named Tim Norris who just volunteered all of his spare time. He absolutely loved it. Um, and because of that coach, I think we've had, I think five, five Olympians come out of East Andover wow. uh, or out of Andover. And I mean, there's, it's only a couple thousand people in the town. And one of the, the another stars aligning thing is that when I started, um, two other boys started with me, same age, Jed Hinckley and Carl Van Loan. And, you know, every day after school, we'd be out there ski jumping and cross country skiing, competing with each other. And, you know, some days you'd be bummed out because you were third in your town, you know, you got beat by so and so. Well, by the time we were 15, we, we went to the junior national championships and we were one through three. Um, mm -hmm. so that little tiny, you know, so we were able to push each other when we had, we had healthy competition growing up. Um, so not only did we have the facilities, I also was fortunate to have, um, young athletes pushing me. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. I mean, not very rarely, uh, again, does something like that happen? And, uh, yeah, just the way stars align sometimes it's, uh, there's some stuff at work and I think it's, it's always very interesting to me, uh, how that works. So, um, at 19, you were diagnosed with diabetes, uh, type 1 diabetes. What, um, what was that like uh, at such a young age, kind of? I mean, it's 
it's, I don't know, 20, how many ever years ago now? I mean, it's not as debilitating. I don't think it's, you know, life sentence or anything, but what was that like at 19 being told like, Hey, this is wrong with you. Did you have, did you notice things? Did you kind of, was it random? What, tell me, tell me about that experience. Well, I've got to back up a little bit and, you know, talk about, um, you know, I, I had won several junior national championships at that point. I'd represented the United States at three world junior championships. Um, I placed in the top 10. I was, I was on a very good career trajectory towards um, going to the Olympics. I, I had just won my, my first national championship and I was training full-time with the U.S. ski team at this point. And about, um, I actually moved to Park City, Utah, where the, the, um, the team trained mm-hmm. at the time, where the corporate offices are. And two months after I arrived there, um, the U.S. ski team does um, routine blood tests, make sure, you know, iron levels are up there, cholesterol's all right, you're absorbing your training properly, basically. Um, they look for any red flags. And one of the, just one of the markers was a fasting glucose test, and my blood sugar was well over twice the level it should have been. Um, that it actually isn't that high for a diabetes diagnosis. People mm-hmm. are often eight, ten times as high as normal when they're diagnosed. Of course, at this point, they're hospitalized. And um, myself, my symptoms were so mild that I hadn't really noticed that anything was wrong with me. Um, mm-hmm. Looking back, you know, I wasn't sleeping well. One of the one of the things is you you go to the bathroom a lot because if you have excess sugar in your blood, your body tries to get rid of it by urinating it. Um, also, if blood if your blood sugar is high, um, your vision can get a little blurry. You can feel lightheaded. But at the same time, I'm 19. I just moved out to Park City, Utah, at 7,000 feet. I'm going on four hour mountain runs with guys who are six, seven years older than me, way stronger was pretty easy to rationalize feeling lightheaded and tired. Mm-hmm. Um, but the diagnosis was, uh, and that was an absolute shock because, you know, you get told your blood sugar is twice what it should be. It meant nothing to me. Didn't really know what diabetes mm-hmm. was. I just know that I got whisked away to an endocrinologist's office down in Salt Lake city who diagnosed me in five minutes. And that was in the, that was in the year 2000. And Um, the doctor was a nice guy, but he, but the, a lot of the notions about what it means to be diabetic was, is, is, and was very negative. Um, and of course I had tunnel vision on making the Olympics in 2002. That's what it was in Salt Lake city Mm -hmm. where I was living. And so one of my first questions is, can I continue on with the US ski team? Can I be an Olympian? And he's like, I don't think so. Um, you know, no one's ever competed at the Olympic level with type one. You're going to have to, you know, think about doing something else. You can still ski, but you're not going to be a world-class athlete. Um, and that was absolutely crushing. Um, I, I was, I was an absolute shock when I was, when I, when I was diagnosed, it would have been one thing had I been sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, instead, exactly. Like, you take a healthy guy and you're like, Oh, by the way, you've got this, uh, lifelong chronic disease and your childhood dream is over. Um, Oh, by the way, here's, here's some insulin. Uh, you should take six shots a day. Um, it was, it was not a good day. Mm -hmm. Um, I still, but I was, I actually went and trained with my team 
after the endocrinologist visit. Um, I never missed a session. Um, I remember it really well. We actually went on a kayak that afternoon and, you know, my, my teammates were splashing each other, flipping each other over in the kayaks, but I, I just went off on my own. I was in tears. I was devastated and I was really frightened more than anything else. And looking back, what you don't understand is frightening. Mm-hmm. And so I, and what I, what I did from there is I learned as much as I could about diabetes. And I was really trying to find something that would give me hope that would make me think I could continue on. And what really did it for me was I just, I, I studied the progression of treatment in the disease and, you know, glucose monitors, monitors had gotten faster, more accurate, but the big change was that, um, rapid acting insulin had only been invented in 1996. And this, the big, this was a big change up until then. Um, you really had to live this very rigid, um, scheduled life around, around food and the timing of your insulin. Mm -hmm. And this newer rapid acting insulin allowed for much more, um, freedom. It's still a restrictive disease, but I looked at that and I thought, how could anyone really know what's possible um, with diabetes, with this treatment, especially if the first thing you're told when you go to the doctor's office is to not try. So um, I actually saw another endocrinologist and this guy was actually, uh, I won't hold back, was a real jerk and he was condescending and just told me that I was dreaming of if I wanted to um, go to the Olympics with this disease. so that kind of put a sour taste in my mouth and um, I looked, I, I kept trying to find a doctor that was worth working with. And I actually ended up working with one um, who was just a volunteer with the ski team. He wasn't even an endocrinologist. He was a cardiologist. Um, but I liked him because he was cautious about diabetes, but he wasn't afraid to try new things, he mm-hmm. things up. He would study. And we, you know, we actually went to, we actually u- utilized the U S ski team gym. Um, they had a treadmill that you could roller ski on in the gym. And so in a very safe environment, um, I could try different insulin doses for different training durations, different Mm -hmm. training intensities, and then try to get a handle on what was happening in my body. And, you know, this all happened in a matter of five or six months. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a quick, quick turnaround. Well, I mean, I was in, it was the year 2000 when I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, in 2002. And I, did, and I did ski in the Olympics in 2002. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's just like for, I don't, obviously I'm not a doctor. I don't really know that much about diabetes. Like I'm like, that's not my spot, but considering how much you've already done up until this point, considering that you are a successful athlete, I'll be at 19 junior Olympics, still whatever. It's incredible um, to have multiple doctors just come out and be like, you can't do this. Like, well, you're already doing it. Don't you think you'd be better if you then got, you know, your body was in the proper state it should be? Like if you had the insulin and like, as you said, your, your, um, uh, your symptoms were very mild. So it, it just sounds very confusing to me that these doctors immediately just wrote off the opportunity to go to the Olympics when you're already on that track without having your body at, at its, its peak performance, right? Like, is that me? I don't get it. Well, my, my symptoms were mild because I was in the early stages of the disease. Okay. Um, Okay. So one of the most frustrating things about being a type one 
diabetic, which is what I am. There's two types of diabetes. There's type one and type mm -hmm. two. Is that virtually no one in the population knows the difference. And type one is, is also known as juvenile diabetes. And it is an autoimmune disease. Um, just like, you know, if you have hypothyroidism, mm -hmm. um, it's your body basically attacking the insulin making cells in your body. It is not a disease that comes from eating too much sugar. It is not, a, it is not linked to cardiovascular disease. Um, that is the type two diabetes and type two diabetes in most cases is tied to genetics and lifestyle. Um, you know, obesity plays a part and type two is over 95% of cases. Type one diabetes is the autoimmune disease. Um, and so when I, when I, when I speak to people about, um, about diabetes, they always like the, one of the first things they say is, Oh, but you look like you're in really good shape <laughs> and, and type one diabetes just has nothing to do uh -huh. with lifestyle. So it's unfortunate that the, the two diseases have share the same name. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe it's actually comes from Latin diabetes itself means high blood sugar. Hmm. So it, it makes sense, but I really wish that when the, when, whenever the, they were discovered and named that they'd had the foresight to give them uh, more distinctive mm -hmm. type one or type two. Yeah. Yeah. That, that does make sense. Um, I, I was aware of the differences, um, but I can understand. I mean, I probably wasn't aware about those differences until only a few years ago. So um, not being a medical professional, it's not well, really something no, I, yeah. There's really no reason to know unless exactly. you're someone with mm -hmm. diabetes, um, you know, you see, you see the jokes online and stuff of you know, liquid diabetes from, you know, Coca-Cola or whatever. And, and, you know, even, even very educated people that are, that I respect have often thought that I had somehow done this to myself by <laughs> eating a poor diet at some point in mm -hmm. my life, which is just a scientific impossibility. It's, it's an autoimmune disease. So that that's frustrating. Um, but I believe that what I was trying to, my point was, is that there, there really isn't a mild type one diabetes. I was okay. in the early stages of it. Eventually, if your body is attacking the insulin making cells in your body, eventually you will lose all insulin making production. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so I think one of the things that it has been most frustrating for me over time with this diabetes, with diabetes, and as an advocate for people with diabetes, is that a lot of the time medical professionals don't want to overwhelm the patient with information. They want to try to keep it simple so that they don't get overwhelmed. But by trying to keep it simple, they undermine how good a control someone can have and what they can do. And I feel like right from the bat, from the get go, I was underestimated. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I have learned a lot about physiology, the interaction of hormones in my body, um, largely through trial and error and then research to try to figure out what was happening rather than just having it presented to me by a doctor in the first place because they didn't want to overwhelm me. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I, I do consider myself a diabetes advocate. I have spoken at hundreds of summer camps for children with diabetes around the country. I've spoken at juvenile diabetes research foundation events, um, large diabetes expos. And my, my message is always that 
your dreams are still attainable with diabetes. It's just more difficult. Mm-hmm. Disease doesn't go away. It is a serious, absolute pain in the butt. I'm sorry you have it, but it does not have to end your life. Absolutely. Um, and I, I've, I have seen that the attitudes are changing um, in the medical. People are being more encouraging, more positive over time, but there's still a lot of um, negative ideas about what it means to be diabetes, to have mm-hmm. diabetes and what your potential is. Mm-hmm. And, and I can understand, especially right off the bat, people being, uh, you know, a little depressed, a little angry um, with this, especially considering type one's not really their fault. Um, it's just a very unfortunate situation. But as you said, you're, everything's still possible. It's just got a couple more hurdles to jump over, a couple more hoops to jump through, um, which does well, make I- it difficult. It's interesting that you mentioned depression because as I look back, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I spent three, four years in a terrible state of depression. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I was also a very functioning depressed person <laughs> going out and training and treating my body as best as I could mm-hmm. while being essentially miserable. Yeah. Um, so there, is, there, there certainly are uh, psychological ramifications to no one. I mean, uh, in order to keep my initial treatment was with shots and in order to keep myself in the ranges that I wanted to be, I was taking over a dozen a day. I was pricking my finger and taking tests 12, 15 times a day. I mean, it was just this obsessive regimen um, to, to try to take the best care and figure out what was happening in my body. And it's just extraordinarily frustrating to mm-hmm. do, a, do a workout sit down in the van starving and not eat food because your blood sugar is high and you watch your teammate just glug a 32 ounce Gatorade while you're drooling. Um, there, there, there was yeah. some jealousy and resentment there. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, I could see that. I could absolutely see that. I and mean, here I, I am 20 years later and I, and you know, I still feel it sometimes. You know, yeah. I go for a workout with my brother and you know, we'll go for a several hour mountain run and I got to plan out mm-hmm. when I'm going to take insulin, how much food I'm going to bring and really think about it and you know he'll show up with a 20 ounce water bottle and say hey let's go Jeez, yeah i mean i guess uh unfortunate um but hey again as as you said already like that's just kind of how it is um seems like you did a pretty good job again four-time olympian <laughs> sounds like you did a pretty good job at uh, uh being on that schedule and on that regimen um and and just i mean going back to the depression thing a little bit we don't need to dive too too deep but i mean considering you know the scientific you know understanding that depression can be combated slightly or, or in most situations with um, physical exercise, considering that that's what you were, that was your life at that point. And you still had that, those depressive thoughts and feelings. And as you said, you were miserable. Um, I can only imagine what it's like for other people who don't, you know, essentially work out for a living or, or are a competitive athlete. So I think that that's something that, um, you know, not to say well, you're lucky, but it's definitely a, a better situation than some others have been in. Well, my coaches at the time, too, were very um, dismissive of the disease. They really made it my issue. Um, they didn't take any ownership of it with me. Um, and I was... How, how so? What exactly does that mean? Like, they didn't was, take it into account when you were working out or... Well, a direct quote is, this is your problem and you have to figure it out. Okay. It's pretty, um, uh, pretty yeah. solid understanding. And so, I mean... In that respect, he was a terrible coach. Um, he was a good trainer. He had some positive things about him, but he had a very narrow view of the world. Um, he didn't educate himself about the disease. He never helped me. And he actually 
um, denied my request to go home with friends and family and actually try to process this. Mm -hmm. And so processing the, processing what was happening to me was really delayed for years because I was at such tunnel focus, Mm -hmm. um, that, um, that I wasn't able to really absorb anything. It was all, it was all about performance and getting to that, getting to the Olympics uh, in, in two years. Um, so back to my advocacy, I definitely stress how important family and friends are, should be, and like, and how, if you are involved in sports and the coach doesn't understand, make him understand, get have mm-hmm. the parents get involved, explain the disease, tell, tell him what, what is possible with the disease, but what the, what, what he needs, what, what the athlete needs from the coach. Um, cause it, I mean, my, my depression was not self-made. It was circumstantial as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, uh, I had some unfortunate lack of support and, um, and very bad guidance from my coaches right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I could see that being, um, even a heavier weight that then comes down on you. Cause as you said, you know, your friends and family are over in New Hampshire and you're on right. the other side of the country, essentially you just not quite sitting there by yourself, but I mean, you know, your teammates, they have their job to do. They're competing against you. Um, right. You know, your coaches, they have their job to do. They're trying to get as many people in the Olympics as possible. So it's, uh, yeah, unfortunate timing, uh, to say and the I, least. And I never know what was happening, you know, behind the scenes with the of course. course. I mean, when I was diagnosed, I mean, I would say optics would have been really bad if they had cut me from the team for being di- for be- having diabetes. But I yeah. would be surprised if they were sitting there thinking, well, we got to let- we got to ride this year out before we cut him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I had a good season. Uh, I was the best gear on the development team that year. So I didn't get cut and I ended up making the Olympics, but who knows what the expectation was off the bat. And um, knowing the coaches, I'm, I'm imagining that it was a pretty negative expectation. I was going to say the assumption probably wasn't that you were going to make the Olympics in 2002, but again, I wasn't in that room having those conversations. So don't want to comment too, too much on that. Um, so obviously we covered a little bit of the health and safety aspect um, with the diabetes. As you said, you've been to multiple um, summer camps. You speak to children all the time. What is, what, uh, and I know you went over it a little bit, but like, what are some of the messages you try and make sure that these kids understand when you are speaking to them, giving them an under, like, Hey, this is, this is your life now, whether you like it or not. Like what are, what are some of those things that you try and instill in them and really kind of leave them with if they took one thing from your talk? Well, I'm, I'm speaking now for Novo Nordisk who, who makes the insulin that I, that I use and that, uh, you know, I, I, I spoke about the, di- the huge difference that this rapid acting insulin makes. And what I try to stress is that diabetes treatment is leaps and bounds better now than it was when I was diagnosed, mm-hmm. which was exponentially better than it was 20 years before I was diagnosed. So I, the message I try to get across is that as bad as having this disease is, it is the best time in history to have it. Um, no one knows what's possible with it. I think there have been so many examples, including myself, of people who have overcome overcome and exceeded the expectations of what's possible with diabetes and I, you know i don't hold myself up as a perfect example but you know what i was presented with when i was diagnosed and then what i did achieve is is, is very different and so I, I make sure i try to make sure that 
people walk away knowing that there don't have to be any limits on their lives because they have diabetes, Mm -hmm. that they don't, because they have diagnosed with type one, it does not mean that they're going to have to have suffer through um, long-term diabetes complications. It is a treatable disease if you stay on top of it, but you also have to learn as much as you can about it. And that doesn't mean just doing what the doctor tells you blindly, you need to, I mean, you need to follow your doctor's instructions off, obviously, but learning why is so important too. Mm-hmm. Because if you, un, if you have a full understanding, um, something that might seem trivial, trivial suddenly makes a lot more sense. That makes sense. And I mean, just from your example, I mean, you went and spoke with multiple doctors, um, not quite, maybe not quite to find the answer that you liked, but to find out really what is possible. Because as you said, those first two doctors pretty much just wrote it off. Um, and it wasn't until that third doctor where it was like, well, we can at least try things, right? Like that's probably, um, again, another, another avenue, another route people can take. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's another thing is if, if you, like I like to say that when I go and see a doctor, I am not, they're not interviewing me. I'm interviewing them. Can they help me? Mm-hmm. If they're if they're coming at coming at it, at it with a bad attitude, um, why would you work with this person? Um, find somebody who meets who who wants to work towards making your life what you want it to be, mm-hmm. um, not someone who's telling you what you have to give up in your life. Absolutely, and that's the way you should do it. And um, I think that's a pretty great transition into doesn't seem like you had to give up too much considering the four times uh, that you got to go to the Olympics. That was obviously a very big dream of yours at 19 um, when you were diagnosed. So what, what was, what was overcoming, you know, again at 19 and then two years later, you know, being in the opening ceremonies with team USA, having the Jersey on, I mean, what would, what were those two years like, um, in the lead up to the Olympics and then finally the culmination with the Olympics being in, in Salt Lake city. Well, I had, um, my, my best Olympic experience was in Salt Lake city in 2002. Um, I mentioned, you know, the kids I grew up with training in, in Proctor, um, Jed Hinckley and Carl Van Lone actually went to that Olympics too. So I went to the opening ceremonies with them. I was on the cross country team and they were on the Nordic combined team, which mm-hmm. is, um, a combination of ski jumping and cross country skiing together. Um, but it was, it was just so fun for the three of us to be, you know, walking into the, into the stadium together. And, and then I, you know, I performed beyond my expectation at the, at that Olympics as well. I mean, my goal had been to make the Olympics ever since me, you know, it was only two years, but that very much tunnel vision. And then I got there and I was skiing extremely well. I was selected to be on our relay team. Um, which is a four-man relay team. Each each man skis ten kilometers and then tags the next guy. Mm-hmm. And um, I was the youngest member of this team by ten years. I was twenty-one. Everybody else was in their early thirties because that's when you peak as a as a cross-country skier, as your late twenties, early thirties. Um, and I was selected to ski historically also the hardest leg, <laughs> which is the second leg. And, um, we, we met, we came off of that race in fifth place, which was the best, the U S key team had ever done in that, in that event. And unfortunately it still is the best we've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully we'll get a medal in that event someday. So, but, uh, to perform like that, uh, in front of the home crowd, I had my family there. I had my high school friends there cheering for me on the side. It was just, it was really fun. And it was like a, a 
this was all worth it <laughs> moment, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. That's um, awesome, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah. with being in uh, the U.S., I, I think that had, like, if the, how, how can't that be, right? Like, how can't that be the coolest opportunity you have? Um, you know, obviously going to other countries and experiencing other cultures, that's a blast, but it's your home crowd, right? Like, what's, what's better than a home crowd? So I think that that's absolutely fantastic. So congratulations on that. And, hey, fifth best in the world at something, Chris. I mean, I would uh, – I'd sign up for 500th best in the world at something. So clearly – you guys are doing something right. Unfortunately, haven't been able to get that medal yet, but maybe one day, right? Well, the women's team um, kind of broke broke that drought last year. They mm-hmm. got a, they got a gold medal in the sprint relay last yep. year. So um, the guys' turn is coming up. Let's go. Let's get it. So that was, um, and then what was what was like the the come down from the Olympics? Obviously, spending the time here home soil, being able to, as you said, family, friends there, like it doesn't get any, you know, more, uh, uh picturesque, doesn't get more movie script than that. Um, especially overcoming the disease, um, and, uh, dealing with it, I guess, for lack of a better term, but what was the, like the come down after all that high and excitement? Um, what were those next four, like four years, like leading up to, to the, the Oh six games? Well, one of the really, one of the first thoughts I had after were after the Olympics was, this was this was amazing. I want to keep going, but can I? Mm-hmm. You know, with um, and I did have a conversation with that same doctor I've been working with, and I said, you know, can I can I keep this going for for another cycle? And he said, I I can't see any reason why you can't. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely something I needed to hear. Um, you know, being on the U.S. ski team is not an easy schedule. Um, it means four to five months a year, um, living out of the suitcase, racing around Europe, um, travel with diabetes, keeping insulin, the proper temperature, getting your diabetes supplies, um, changing time zones, different schedules, different elevations, all of these affect your hormones and insulin is a hormone. Um, so it's not an easy thing to, to do, um, with type one, but I'm very thankful that that, that the doctor I was working with was positive right after the Olympics. I was like, yes, you can do this. Um, the next year I actually took another really big leap in performance. Um, and I competed at the under 23 years of age world championships and I won the the 30 kilometer event there. Um, and that is still the, the only individual world championship that, uh, any American has won in cross country skiing. Wow. So that, so the come down was not that big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly there was what come down. I mean, more, more yeah. of a, more of a glow up. It sounds like, um, and that is, that is fantastic. It's just, so with, with being as you know, as we spoke about a little bit, um, and I guess this more, you know, focus around the, the, the diabetes and sport aspect of it, but with, you know, being diagnosed at 19 and, and kind of being at the, the fledgling stages of the disease, how, what is, what is the growth to, I don't even know how to describe it, like peak diabetes, I guess, or, or like, does it just progressively get worse as, as you move along? Is there ways to kind of slow that aspect of it down? Because as you said, like, can you continue to do this for four more years? Well, you did it for another 12. So you're clearly doing something right. But what is that aspect like where is it getting worse and worse every single day? Can you notice that? Is it, is it an overtime type of thing, especially with being an elite athlete? 
so there are research programs um, trying to find ways to slow the progression of the disease and mm-hmm. or prevent the disease. If you have, um, so there is a genetic link to being predisposed to type one diabetes. Mm-hmm. They don't know what it is, um, but I am of about ninety-five percent Swedish descent. And it is much more prevalent in Scandinavian bloodlines than any other bloodline in the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, um, for instance, in Japan, it's very rare. Mm-hmm. So if you're Japanese, you don't necessarily need to worry about having type 1 diabetes much. Whereas if you're in Scandinavia, it's much more likely. Um, so if you have a sibling with diabetes, there have been research programs trying to figure out if they supplement with something or if they give them some type of immunoblocker or something, they won't develop it. Mm-hmm. But at the time I was diagnosed that I was unaware of anything it was never presented to me. Um, if there was something in existence, it was only at the research stage. Um, so I was w- what's in what's commonly referred to as the honeymoon stage. And the honeymoon stage is where your body still makes some insulin but not enough to keep your blood sugar in um, a normal state. And I was in an ever decreasing amount of honeymoon for several years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't say pinpoint the exact date when I just stopped making all insulin. And it was good in that it helped in, it was kind of like a bailout if I messed something up with my treatment, but it was bad because it was constantly changing the amount of insulin I needed for the same event for the same amount of food was constantly changing because my body was making less insulin as time went on. Yeah. I could see that getting really frustrating. Um, especially at a young age, like 19, 20, 21, 22, like that just sounds, as you said, traveling all around Europe, up and down and different time zones, elevations, all that. Um, you're a much stronger man than I, Chris. I will, I will definitely say that that's incredible. Well, thank you. Um, like I said, they, there, there was, there's for sure was a mental toll and I, and I look back and, um, the tunnel vision I had on my performance, um, it was, it was, it was almost an unhealthy, I was always trying to prove to myself that I was okay. Mm-hmm. And if I performed well, that I knew, then I was okay. But if I performed badly, then I wasn't okay. And that was a very vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so as good as my results were, and as good as things were going on the ski side, once again, I was still pretty miserable for several years. Um, and it took me a while to accept what was happening and, 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 and turn things around. So for anybody that... Um, might be listening to this and, and also is suffering from a chronic disease. I think it taking a moment and thinking about what really makes you happy is also important. And, you know, skiing fast made me happy, but not happy enough. And I needed, I needed more in my life than just trying to prove to myself that I was okay by skiing fast. And if I could mm-hmm. go back and talk to myself, I would, I would definitely do that. Remind yourself there's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more to this thing uh, yeah. called life. Um, when, when was that? When was that final like acceptance, I guess, for lack of a better term of, okay, this is, this is just it, you know, no, no reason to fight it anymore. Um, it was probably after my second Olympics. So 2006, um, 
the 2006 Olympics didn't go that well. Um, I was, my best finish was 20th, um, in that, in that, in that games. And I, afterwards, I just, I took a moment and I, I stopped working primarily with US ski team coaches. I went back to a coach that I had used in college and in high school. And, um, I just took more ownership of my life mm-hmm. and, um, became and that and getting away from an organization that only saw me as as a result for them and a way to keep their job as opposed to a person mm-hmm. um was it was it was a good step for me yeah yeah, yeah. i mean cons- like that's I, I would never want to just be looked at as a result um Obviously, I don't quite do the same thing you do, but uh, that I can't see that being very and healthy. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say that everyone that no, of course worked not. The US ski team was bad. You know, I had I had some I I had some really good caring coaches, and I had some really awful coaches. Um, but I would say, as a whole, the US ski team organization looks at you as a result. As a result, before they look at you as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so. it's, that is the nature of winning medals, right? We have to be the best. We got to do what we got to do. I, I hate the medal count. Um, I think it's very frustrating. It's extremely media driven where we should celebrate the athletes that just make it, in my opinion, uh, just make it, that, that make it to the highest level of, of sport in the entire world every four years. Um, well, that is, that's an but, interesting point because uh, the media in the United States with the, with the Olympics um, and with the U.S. ski team plays into this a lot is really – um, they, they don't help their own cause. Um, because I remember when I was going into the 2010 Olympics, um, I had just had one of my career best results in 2009 at the Liebrich world championships. I was fourth place in the world championships, 15 K classic. I was one second from a medal. Um, a guy who was later convicted of doping won the race. So I probably would have, I should have a medal. Um, but you know, in the, in the sports climate, you should probably everybody can make that claim at this point. Mm-hmm. That's a different topic. Um, but anyway, I was getting a lot of media attention. Um, and the ski team is so we are focused on winning medals. And the first questions you get from a major publication is, are you going to win a medal? When are you going to win a medal? And you know, I started out my answers with, well, you know, I've been in the top 10 a dozen times. Um, I, if on the right day, I, I could get a medal. It'd be great. And then like the hundredth time you get asked, you're like, yeah, I'm going to run, I'm going to win a freaking medal. You know, you just get worn mm-hmm. out. Whereas I look at like the Norwegian or the Swedish press and they've got people who are almost guaranteed to win a medal, like Mart Bjorgen, you know, won 20 medals in her career or something ridiculous. They don't ask her that question. They ask her how her preparation's going. They ask her if she feels good, what races she's going to focus focus on. They never put the pressure on them of, are you going to win a medal and when, and how many medals are you going to win? Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the last Olympics, and Michaela Schifron, I forget exactly what her medal count was, but I think two maybe, and one was gold, and she was in three or four events, and the media treated her like it was a failure. Mm-hmm. She didn't win yep. four golds. Oh, my God. She stinks. And we're talking about like, the best, most successful woman in the history of the sport. Um, it, it's really absurd uh, the way the U.S. media treats our Olympic athletes. And if they actually cared about them winning gold, 
they would ask them nicer questions and not focus everything on the result because mm-hmm. it's, it's simple sports psychology. You focus on the process, not the end result. And it's media, simple. Media's background. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's psychology in every aspect. You should always focus on the prospect or uh, process. Um, but yeah, I mean, considering it's uh, on NBC, how often like the homepage of NBC sports, the, uh, um, you know, team USA, there's always a metal count up there. If you go to, I mean, if you just watch the games, how many times a night will they show the metal count, the metal count, the metal count. So, uh, I mean, Yes, it is the media, but at the same time, if it's what we're always fed, it's what we're always going to, you know, assume and, and think of. Um, and again, I personally think just making it there is incredible. You said you finished fifth. That's incredible. <laughs> that is that is insane. You're fifth best in the world at something. Uh, how many people can make that claim? You know, four others, literally. Only four other people can say that they're fifth or better. Um, and I think that that's just, it's just absolutely incredible just to get there and compete. Well, um, I... I would have, I really, I'll be honest. I really would have preferred that medal. Um, of course. I mean, yeah. Fifth, like, fifth is nice, but, um, and, and, and counting up the medals at the end or even reporting it on TV is fine as well. But when you just, when you, all you talk about is to the, to the athletes as they lead up to the games about medals, it's, it's counterproductive. And, um, I, 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 I think that it, in some respects it might work. It, it might not be as destructive for shorter events. Um, you know, say mm-hmm. um, freestyle skiing where the event's 20 seconds. You know, those nerves, those, those things in your mind, you can put them out of your mind for 20 seconds. But, and even if you're a little fatigued from it, you might be okay. But when your race is two hours long and all you've been thinking about is how you're going to get a medal for three months, mm-hmm. you're exhausted. Um, and once again, uh, I think that the U S ski team should change their approach to how they present their athletes to the media. Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe, maybe we can change something, Chris. I'm, uh, let's, let's get this train rolling, get it on the tracks and rolling along. Um, so I do want to hop back to Oh six for a second. Um, I know as you said, it wasn't your best performance um, at the games. And there was actually, uh, you actually collapsed on the course during one of the races. Um, now that, that's was obvious. Actually, that was actually in 2010 that that happened. Oh, that was 10? I apologize. I apologize. Poor, um, oh, that was, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have the name of the games, not the, so let's, I guess, then go forward in time. So 2010, um, obviously that's a, it's a very dramatic moment uh, to say the least. What, what was that? I mean, what, what was going through your head? I mean, how, how does something like that happen? Um, considering you've been, you know, I guess dealing with this for, for such a long time at this point, like what, what potentially went wrong or, or really what, what was going on that, that, uh, made that a possibility, I guess. Well, I had, I had hundreds and hundreds of pro races and yeah. I've only had, um, I only had three hypoglycemic or low blood sugar, um, events. And that was the most extreme. Mm-hmm. in all that time i mean how many years 16 years of pro racing mm-hmm. so i like to <laughs> point that out yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i think but, it's, what, it's... but what happened there and you know and, and i i was just talking about the pressure of the media and i'm certain by no means do i mean do i mean this as a cop-out um but going into those games i mentioned i had a great performance in Liebrich. i um, had a ton of media. I was on the cover of Outside Magazine. I had interviews with New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today. And 
you know, I had built, I had been built up as a metal contender mm-hmm. and I was an outside shot at a metal. I was not like, you know, it was a possibility. Um, and given the history in cross country skiing, that was exciting in the United States, but by no means was I, was I a lock on the metal. And I really was nervous as, as all hell going into the Olympics. And one of the things that happens in the body when you are nervous is you release cortisol and you release adrenaline and cortisol is a stress hormone and it makes the body far less receptive to insulin. Mm -hmm. And if you're not diabetic, your body just compensates by producing more insulin. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm producing cortisol. My blood sugar is going up. I'm having to raise my, my insulin doses to, to cover this cortisol. Um, every time I think about the race, I'm getting these little adrenaline res- spikes, which tells the liver to dump more, store glucose into the body. I have to give myself more insulin. Um, leading up to the race, I was essentially losing control of my diabetes control because I was getting sick out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up starting the race on more insulin than I'd ever had before um, to keep levels normal. And I was actually feeling quite good in that race. I was in a virtual tie for first when I, when I did start going low. Um, and, but once that happened, it was, you know, you end up in the snow and I was there for a couple of minutes. Um, I was able to get some glucose on the side of the trail because somebody like threw a gel packet and some sport drink at me and I, I continued the race, but I should have stopped. Um, Mm -hmm it took a massive toll on my body to race through that low. And I was never the same again that season. So being a tough guy and getting 55th or whatever I got that day seemed like the right thing to do. But for the long term, it, it actually gave me chronic fatigue for about three months. Wow. I used so much. I basically tapped out my adrenal gland um, in that race, keeping my blood sugar up after I'd gone low. Wow. Um, so my message to people with diabetes is if you have a low in an Olympic race or an important race, it's probably not worth finishing it. Think about the next event. Um, the other thing that I learned from going through all that, from going through the stress, you know, I talked about the media. I'm not going to blame the media for my, for that day. Um, I didn't have the stress coping skills I needed. Um, and when I evaluated what went wrong and decided I was going to go continue on for another Olympic cycle, uh, the first thing I did was, uh, seek out some help for relaxation. I learned some basic meditation techniques. I learned, I I would do yoga and things like that before a race. So rather than listening to, you know, Guns N' Roses or Metallica at full volume before a race, I'd be off in a, in a closet, uh, meditating, trying to stay as calm as I could. And that actually made a huge difference. Um, and I didn't compete again that season, but the next November, um, in the opening this, uh, ski race in Finland, um, I, I won my first race back. I beat the Olympic bronze medalist. So I felt good about that. Wish I could have had that performance at the Olympics, Mm -hmm. but you live and you learn. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, it's more important than you come out healthy uh, than anything. I, I didn't realize that powering through something like that could then affect, have have that much of a relatively long-term effect. I mean, three months of chronic fatigue, that sounds pretty intense. Um, well, you think chronic fatigue in 
a normal non-diabetic body is basically not basically tapping out your adrenal gland Mm -hmm. to the point that you have no response to stress. Um, and I basically tapped out my adrenal gland in a single day. So recovering from true, um, chronic fatigue can take years, but because it was our artificial process that got me there, Mm -hmm. I came out of it fairly quickly. And I didn't really realize what was happening. I just later on realized that I had all the symptoms. I kept getting sick. I, I'd try to go out and train and I'd just get worse and get sick. <laughs> and, um, and then one day my body was back. I went for mm-hmm. a run and I felt stronger the next day as opposed to getting a cold <laughs> and sleeping for a week. So, Well, happy, happy that we got through it. Um, that, is, that is crazy, man. Well, congratulations uh, for finishing again much stronger than I. Um, and then, so, so that's three of your Olympic experiences. And then obviously you didn't sit on your couch between 10 and, and 14. Um, but getting to 14 and, and making the decision, especially with having that, you obviously made the decision to come back because as you said, the next season, you were already at, at the, the, the fifth event. What made you want to go for that fourth, um, fourth games? Uh, what, what, what age are you at now at this point? 30, four somewhere around there well i had my best and most consistent season was actually the year after the olympics in 2011 mm-hmm. um kind of um a well, measure- what made you want to come back for this quadrennial like you were just no matter what you were already the decision was made that you were like nope we're going or, or was there some internal dialogue there um i really love skiing um i still ski a lot today um i love ski racing i love i love the pushing of it there are there's political parts of it i don't like um you know in in the national governing body and the international governing body but there's the purity of the sport i I loved it and i didn't feel like i was done and i wanted to continue Mm -hmm. and easy enough and for sure going into that olympics i was in great shape i'd had Prior to the Olympics, I'd had two of my best performances ever. A um, couple of top tens on the World Cup, um, another fourth place in a, in, a, in a World Cup there. So um, I, w- I felt like I was still towards the top of my game. I, I realized that biologically, by the time I got to my fourth Olympics, I was going to be past my prime. Um, but for those couple, first couple of years after 2010, I was still... Um, I was still jamming at at, at my mm-hmm. best. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. So then we get to 2014 Sochi Olympics. Um, what was, did you think that was going to be your last Olympics or were, you know, as you said, you kind of knew you were at, you know, biologically you're a little after your prime, but was that another conversation where you kind of knew once this was done, this was done? Um, after 2014, um, 2014, so like I mentioned that 2002 was my best experience. So, uh, you know, I had, I had 20 22, 2002. I had, I performed beyond my expectations. 2006, I was a little sick. 2010, I had the blood sugar problems. And then 2014, I was sick again. So I didn't have the, the best four Olympics. I had mm-hmm. one really great Olympics to start off. Um, and once again, after 2014, I knew I was, I, was, I was past my prime, but at that point, I was actually curious to see if I could make a fifth Olympic team. 
Um, and I had uh, great support from my sponsors. Um, I had uh, virtually no contact with the US ski team anymore. So I was actually enjoying the sport more than I ever had. <laughs> Interesting. Would you look and, at that, huh? Um, and so um, I took it year by year. Um, and, you know, 2015, I won, an, I won my 17th national championship. I was, st- I was still having a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2018, I, everything came to making my fifth Olympics. Everything came down to one race in the end, as it often does. And I had to place in the top two in the 30 K classic event at us nationals to make the team. And I finished third. I was a half a second behind second. I didn't make it. Um, I wasn't that crushed by it because I knew I wasn't in the shape anymore that I needed to really be in any conversation for the medals at that point. I mm-hmm. was 37, um, five years past peak and I almost made a fifth Olympics. So I couldn't complain too much. No, I mean, I think that's still incredible. I mean, half a second, um, seems like you took it pretty well. Uh, but, being a competitive I took it better guy. than I thought I would. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah, I mean that that's good. I mean being a competitive guy and and literally your entire life essentially at this point being a competition, being in sport. Um I could see you being a little little a uh, little frustrated, maybe even a little relieved honestly that it didn't happen. Like it is what it is. Obviously, if you could have gotten it, I'm sure you would have said yes, right? Like that's not even a question, but um I don't know. All good things have to come to an end, right? Right. Um, and after, after 2018, um, at that point I was like, okay, I'm, I'm 37. I didn't, I didn't make the Olympics. Um, there are other things in my life that I want to do. And, um, I got, I got married, um, that the summer before that. So 2017 and, um, I wanted to start a family. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have a child while I was still spending most of my winters in Europe and mm-hmm. things like that. So it was time to, to move on to another stage in my life. Mm-hmm. And that stage being a professional triathlete. Um, that wasn't, I, I knew I wanted to, I knew I couldn't just stop being an athlete. Mm-hmm. It was exactly. Know, yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the mental, <laughs> benefits of being an athlete. And if I had just stopped training, I probably wouldn't mm-hmm. have a basket case. Um, but I very consciously did not train for skiing. Um, I found a great swimming coach. I started learning swim technique. I started biking and running. Um, not, not massive amounts of training at the beginning. Um, just, just kind of to keep myself occupied and healthy and happy. Um, um, I, was very lucky with my wife. We had a child exactly as we wanted to schedule wise. And, you know, it's just like, we want to have a baby. And there was the baby. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Very know, lucky. Was, <laughs> yeah. That was, that was wonderful. Um, and so very busy with that, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so training was on the back burner. Um, and then for that was for the first year. And then uh, I, I ramped things up last year. I did my first Ironman triathlon um, in Lake Placid. And what's, what's an Ironman? Explain that to me. Um, and I, a full length Ironman is 2.4 miles of swimming, 112 miles of biking, and then a marathon. And you did one of those? I did. I did one of those. 
Mm. Um, very, very little uh, training you were saying. I, I don't know, man. That sounds like you need to train a little bit, a little bit more for that. Well, um, in relation to what I could have handled, in relation to what I could have done, um, mm-hmm. in order to prepare for it. Okay. Um, still a lot for someone who hasn't been a professional athlete for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, so now it was, a that... redu- it was a reduction in my overall training, but it was, I guess that's true. It was yeah. Still, it's it was still 600 hours of training. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's very true. I guess it's all relative, right? It's, it's all relative. What did you used to do? Um, so yeah, it's probably yeah, a nice light load for you. So good luck. Congratulations on that. Well, you know, racing for nine hours was uh, very different than racing for two hours. And it mm-hmm. set a, different um whole different level of questions about how to dose with insulin yeah and how to how to fuel that race and i made a few mistakes um i blood sugar was trending lower than i wanted for the second half of my marathon at the end of the race so i'm gonna Mm -hmm. make some changes i'm gonna go back and do it again um this summer and then i plan to compete at the kona world championships to qualify of course Mm -hmm. in october well, so. good luck, Chris. That's incredible. Um, so that's the the Ironman triathletes. Like, do you do? I don't know what do you call them. Normal, like a regular triathlon. Like, so there's there's four there's four general uh, distances mm-hmm. in triathlon. Um, there's the sprint, and then there's the Olympic distance. Olympic distance is a point nine mile swim, approximately thirty on the bike, and then a, a six mile run. Mm-hmm. And then there's the half Ironman. So mm-hmm. one point two fifty six mm-hmm. and a half and a half marathon, and I mo- I mostly do Olympic and and halves. Um, I mean, recovering from a nine hour race is a multi month. Yeah, that- to to truly race and go all out in an Ironman, you've got to spread them out a lot. I mean, you could do them back to back, but your performance and body would suffer quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, I could see that being. Um- I don't think the human, I mean, obviously the human body can do that, but I don't think it was really specifically made to do that. Um, but it's still incredible. So congratulations on all that. And I guess what is being, a? I know, you know, obviously been to your website, you have a bunch of sponsors. So shout out to all of them. We really appreciate them supporting you um, in multiple different facets, but you know, obviously don't want to know how many dollars you make a year, but what is that like being a professional triathlete, um, especially with the Olympics, not quite um, or maybe, maybe they are, you tell me if the Olympics, I mean, 2020, I probably would have heard your name a couple more times at this point, but what, it, what is the, is there an end goal or is this just something that you thoroughly enjoy doing? And Hey, if you can make enough money doing it, let's just, let's just keep that train rolling. It's something that I enjoy doing. I think that I, I like continuing to push the limits of what people consider possible with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, I still, speak publicly um with novo nordisk about diabetes and i like talking about you know when i first had the idea of doing the iron man one of the first thoughts i had is can i do this and how do i do this Mm -hmm. and the fact that i even thought can i do this bothered me (laughs) so um there's i i want to like i said i want to keep pushing the limits and, and demonstrating what what is possible um with this disease and and one of the things I like about doing triathlon at this point is as I approach 40, um, I can still get better at this sport. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a, a sport that requires any quick twitch, twitch muscle fiber. <laughs> um, all the endurance training I've done throughout my life still helps me towards this. Mm-hmm. Um, so improving is, is, 
is fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a long ways to go with my swim technique. So, ah, there you go. Yeah. I I could see that. Um, running's probably a little more natural biking as well. Uh, especially from where you came from swimming, I could see, uh, being a little difficult, but, uh, congratulations on all that, man. I think that that's absolutely incredible going from one crazy endurance sport to one that might be even crazier. Um, in, in the fact that it takes nine hours to complete some of these races. Good, good for you, man. And uh, good luck at that next one. You said October, if I'm not mistaken, or um, I'm going to do Iron, the... Ironman Lake Placid is in July. Okay. And assuming I make, I'm top three, um, then I would go to the, the world champs. I love it. I love it. Good luck, man. Congratulations. And then the last thing I always just like to ask athletes, especially, um, Seems like biology, you know, even though you have this disease, um, doesn't really affect you like it does some other people, considering you're doing these things at 40 years old after all the hours you've already put on your body. So you're clearly doing something right. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Um, but at some point, gravity, biology, going around the sun a couple times really does not allow humans to compete at the absolute most highest level um, in sport. I mean, obviously, I hope it's something you could do for the rest of your life. But what is what is after sports competition for Chris? What is what is that next post career career? Is it, is there another sport? Are you going to take up archery? Maybe darts? Anything along those lines? <laughs> um, I don't. I think uh, I think I'm going to do. I, I want to do Ironman um, and provided that I can continue to make a living doing it. Um, I will, I will do it for another two years. Um, I want to go to those world championships and see how I do. And then, um, I, I, I believe I'd also like to see if I could, um, put down the fastest time by someone with diabetes and Mm -hmm. push that to the next level. Um, I had the, I was the fastest, um, person with diabetes in the Ironman like placid just that one by about 15 minutes in my first in my first go Mm -hmm. um so going for i i I don't like talking about pigeonholing like competing with with diabetes but Mm -hmm. i haven't been doing this that long and i I would think it would be interesting to see just how fast i could get and i think in two more years i'd have a pretty good idea and then my and then as you mentioned gravity and biology is probably going to start slowing me down and I think I would really like to start uh, coaching skiing um, at either the collegiate or international mm-hmm. level. Um, I've had, I, you know, I was professional for, God, I don't know, I don't know how you classify it, but almost 20 years. Um, and I've had some great coaches. I've had some horrible coaches. I know what's worked. And I think just from what I've seen and how, various attitudes and um, approaches have affected me both negatively and positively I could have a lot to to add um, and hopefully hopefully help our our U.S. skiers go to a a better level higher Mm -hmm. level I'm all for it man good coaching it's very important um, especially with young kids like you were Um, so the other and you know and I I I think I've always known that I wanted to coach uh, at some point but I am an intensely uh, competitive person. And I think I've had coaches that have gone straight from being a competitive athlete to being a coach and they couldn't help but compete with their athletes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be that guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know myself well enough that I would have been that guy. (laughs) Honesty is the first step, Chris. I like that. Um, Yeah. Take, take some time away from it and understand like, okay, this is, this is their time. I'm here to help them. I think that's very important, but, uh, 
Chris, man, this was fantastic. That's all I got. Unless you have anything else, Chris Freeman, U.S. Ski team, four-time Olympic athlete, current professional triathlete. Really appreciate your time today, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to say thank you one more time to Chris for hanging out with me for about an hour. I want to thank all of you out there for listening. Really do appreciate it. This is my favorite thing I get to do. So I hope that you get to enjoy a little bit of it as well. Um, make sure to follow Chris on all of his socials. Everything is in the show notes. Please follow us as well. All of our information is in the show notes. It's a lot of fun, a lot of interesting stuff. Instagram, Twitter, and specifically my LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope you guys had a lot of fun with this one. Please make sure to rate this, uh, give it five stars reviews or a star or something um, on whatever podcast app of choice you like to listen to this on. That helps us get in front of a couple more people. So thank you all so much, and I hope you make it a wonderful day. <laughs>